The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Ladies and gentlemen, we are welcoming Bart Herbison, Executive Director of the Nashville Songwriters Association International. That's NSAI for short. It is the world's largest not-for-profit songwriters trade association. The organization is committed to protecting the rights and future of the songwriting profession and to educate the public about songwriting and to protect the future of songwriting. Bart Herbison is a Tennessee native. He has a history in radio broadcasting, newspaper reporting, and working in politics. Putting this all together seems to be a great foundation for what he does. So, Bart Herbison, thank you very much for making the time to talk to me. My pleasure, Paul. I hear you're a little under the weather, so hopefully that doesn't last long. (laughs) I appreciate that. What would you say is the most rewarding thing about what it is that you do? Well, twofold. First, it's the honor of representing what I consider the most the most amazing creative profession ever, which is songwriters. You know, the things that mark the important moments in our lives, from weddings to funerals, come out of thin air in, in the minds of these great creators. That, and when we make accomplishments on their behalf, such as the Music Modernization Act, the Copyright Royalty Board victory, and particularly, I have two things that I just love the most. That's working with up-and-coming songwriters, the dreamers, and a thing I get to do in um, our local newspaper here. It's a series every week called Story Behind the Song, where I take one song and sit down and interview the songwriters about that song. And you can tell I'm just a big fanboy when you watch those episodes. In that series, that's that's how I became aware of you and i have to say you do such a wonderful job with those and anyone they can check out as you said tennessean.com right what is that experience like for you you have these songs that have touched so many people and then there you get to ask those questions that you've wondered about that song well, I love that the Tennessean just gives me complete autonomy. I get to choose the songs, so they're songs that I'm familiar with. Um, and again, if you if you watch it, I sort of geek out. I just my jaw will drop often. Lots of times, I know much about the songs, and sometimes I don't. But I am just, you know, I'm just the world's biggest song fan, and I think it shows during these episodes. You say that you're a fan of of songs themselves, and I think there are a lot of people out there. They're really they're they're not so much aware of songwriters. They don't know the difference between someone who's singing a song that they wrote. But so many artists record songs that others wrote. How did you become aware of the plight of songwriters? Well, I grew up with a very su- guy that became a very successful songwriter, Jimmy Stewart, not the actor, but he had a lot of success in the country genre. And and from early on, I was also a DJ at a very, very early age, at the age of 16. And that was back when we played records and you read the liner notes. You know, I come from a musical family, everybody but me. And so I've just managed somehow throughout 
my entire life to be around it. And I've always, in particular, gravitated to the songwriters. The, the genius of that creativity still to this day, I just find remarkable and inspiring. I'm hoping you can share with us some of your memories of being on the radio. Sure. Well, my late father, they called him Herbie, Herbie Herbison. We had a painting business, and it was painting and sandblasting, and it was nasty. And they, they uh, my brother still does that, my brother John Herbison. But they specialized in high things like church steeples, bridges, etc. And I worked every summer for him, and it was grueling. And one summer, I'd had too much. And as happens with fathers and sons, we butted heads a little bit. And there was a guy at my school that worked at the local radio station. My hair was down to my waist. It was matted full of sand and paint. I walked about five blocks across town. I walked into that radio station and said, I want a job. They pulled some news copy from the old UPI wire machine, asked me to read it. I guess I did okay, because the next thing you know, I was off to Memphis to get my third-class federal communications radio telephone telegraph license, which was required back then, and I started a few weeks later. And pretty soon, even in high school, there were, there were two stations with three or four different formats in that same building, an FM and an AM that played country, pop, and on the weekends, the, the country station played album-oriented rock. We did a lot of news. We did a lot of stand-up interviews. It was a wonderful training ground, and I literally sometimes got to work 80 to 100 hours a week between the two stations when I was in school, and, and to this day, it's one of the favorite things I ever got to do. Memories, you know, you, you get to meet a lot of people. A lot of people, went, especially I, I gravitated and became a news director of that group of stations and and worked for the Nashville Banner here and the Tennessee Radio Network. So it's the people you meet and the stories you cover along the way. And my colleagues on the air, you know, I had a lot of mentors from your audience may not know these names and a lot of them are gone now, but Gary Powley and Barry Crow and and to this day, anything I've ever achieved professionally, I owe to those mentors. And in my day, it wasn't as strict. We had a lot of latitude about what we played and what we did, and it was just super fun, especially in a medium, small-sized town like I came from when there was no TV station. It was the number one form of people getting their information and entertainment. Interesting. And nowadays where radio stations have such limited playlists you might hear a total of 70 80 songs you're saying this was not the case then we got to kind of play what we want look the program director was constantly <laughs> yelling at me but we had a lot of latitude back then within the format and even on our country station we'd go as far out there as pure prairie league all the way to the country furlan husky and the same thing on the pop station and on the album-oriented rock programs on the weekend. We literally played anything we wanted to play. Would you say that there is a Bart Herbison theme song? Is there a song that, that best describes you? Well, that would probably be some sort of schizophrenic, chaotic <laughs> song. But I will tell you some of my favorite songs. My favorite song of all time, and it's never wavered, is the rain song by led zeppelin it's a 
wonderful orchestral piece about the seasons of emotion. I had a top 10 song list for many years, and it never changed for probably over the past 25 years. But it changed recently, and a song that was not on the list has become my number two favorite all-time song. That's Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan. I've just The more I, I look and research that song, the more genius it is. I always loved the song Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass. And one of the fortunate things in my job is I got to meet Elliot Lurie, the writer and the lead singer of that band. There's a couple of Nashville bands that the world may not know that are my favorites. One is the Screamin' Cheetah Wheelies. And the great Mike Ferris, you can find him online. He, he went on to a great solo career. And in my top five favorite songs is their Hello from Venus. And it's about, it's about the, the tough emotions when you leave your small town. You love the town, but sometimes there's not opportunities there for you. You aspire to greater things. You achieve those. And when you go back, it's weird. And that's what that song is about. The Eric Hamilton Band here in Nashville, anything they ever did, anything, especially a couple songs called Home Together and Popcorn Box. And then I am a huge Elvis fan. And at the top of that list, I probably have three Elvis songs that, that have never wavered as my favorites. If I Can Dream, Suspicious Minds, and Any Day Now. You are a man of diverse tastes, that's for sure. <laughs> Good taste, though. Well, thank you. Are people waking up about what songwriters are facing in this day and time? Well, there's a long answer to that question. It starts with how the National Songwriters Association was formed in 1967. Here in Nashville, there were only 80 professional songwriters total. And a guy named Eddie Miller, who wrote the great country anthem, Please Release Me, Let Me Go, thought that the songwriters needed a voice. So he convinced 41 others to get together. You may not know them, but you'd know their songs. Mary John Wilkin, who wrote The Long Black Veil and One Day at a Time, Sweet Jesus. Felice and Boudelot Bryant, the Everly Brothers, Wake Up Little Susie and Rocky Top and Love Hurts. Liz and Casey Anderson. You know, there were a whole lot more, Danny Dill. And their very first issue, if you will, their first fight was to let the public know that the artist didn't always write the songs. You know, Elvis never wrote songs. Barbara Streisand didn't write songs. Madonna didn't really write songs. Sinatra didn't write songs. They may have written a song, but they depended on craftsmen songwriters whose names you may never know to write things like Strangers in the Night and And If I Can Dream and all these great songs. And so they were successful. And their issue was to get the songwriters' names put on records so the public would know there was somebody behind that song. It took them about four years. It had happened sometimes, but it was not an industry practice. And after convincing music publishers and record labels to do that in 1970, every major American record label, then globally, the songwriters were recognized, finally. The font was super small, but it was a great moral victory to us. It's still a struggle. People ask me, what, what's one of your biggest challenges? And it's to... It really speaks to your question that you asked, to let people know, especially Congress, <clears throat> regulatory agencies, courts, 
that somebody's behind these songs. Your listeners may not know that when you listen to a song, there's two copyrights. There's the song the songwriter writes called the musical work, which has always been under ridiculous government restrictions, starting from judges setting our rates to not even looking at what the market would do if these rates were set in the marketplace. Then there's the record that's made of that song. It has some government control, but very little. And so what happened over the past century is there was a great disparity between what the songwriter made and then what those who recorded the song made. And let's remember this, too. If the songwriter is not the artist, and many artists do write their own songs, so they get two income streams. But if you're a songwriter who's not the artist, you don't share in any merchandise. You don't share in any concert revenue or product placements. So it's a much more difficult proposition. I do believe that we are making a lot of headway in that. I told you this was a long answer, but I'll try to condense it and end with this. Our founding fathers knew that the promise of this nation was its ideas and creations. And so they most respected James Madison to put that into words and ask him to author Article One, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution in order to promote progress and science and the useful arts, and it goes on, I'm paraphrasing, to, to grant authors and inventors the rights to their works for a limited time. And that includes songwriters. And for a long, long time, we got away from that. Government got away from that. They forgot what makes this country special. But I'm pleased to say, over the past three or four years, it seems like Congress is remembering that, some of the regulatory agencies and some of the courts. We passed some landmark legislation, the most important copyright reform for songwriters in 100 years in 2018. Our issues, copyrights, go through the House and Senate Judiciary Committee. That's the committee that also has jurisdiction over impeachment, email servers. It is so highly political but we passed both of those committees unanimously and the House and Senate unanimously. So I hope that is a great signal going forward that we, our country, all parties can still remember what makes us great and agree on measures to protect that. I remember a past guest on this show, the songwriter Brian Kennedy, and he was mm -hmm. saying if people knew how much songwriters make a year they would maybe see things differently. He said, it, it, in, in a lot of cases, it can be just, just a few thousand dollars, depending on the writer. That's right. It's how much they don't make. One of our, we did a big event in D.C. several years ago, about eight years ago now, before the Judiciary Committee. And we had five songwriters play famous songs. You may not know them, but you might know the songs Living on a Prayer, you're going to miss this. Beautiful. Songs are typically co-written, and songwriters typically have a music publisher. So if there's two writers and two publishers, you have one-fourth interest in the royalty stream of that song. At that time, we showed that each of those songs, after 35 million streams, that one-fourth interest to the songwriter equaled $185. That's not sustainable. We have lost, in catastrophic numbers, many of America's songwriters in the digital era. First, it was piracy, and it's hard to find a business model that's free. 
then it was streaming and the rules were so skewed against the songwriters that was almost like legal piracy we've made some important adjustments i think we've slowed down hopefully maybe even stopped the bleeding but we've got a lot more to do as we move forward to resurrect this profession so how can the average person an everyday person who is sympathetic to songwriters what can they do on a personal level to help there's three things they can really do don't steal do not steal music there's so much technology where you can download songs for free where you can rip songs from youtube or streaming services that would be like somebody taking whatever product it is that you make and stealing it. It is theft. Don't do that. Respect it. You can pay for legal streaming service for $10 a month, get essentially the entire global catalog throughout history of music, and that's a bargain. We used to pay $20 per CD. $10 a month, you get everything, pay for it. And be careful about which streaming company you use. Not to make a political statement, but at the time of this taping, you know, we are in an appeal. We want a big lawsuit against Apple, Amazon, Pandora, Spotify, and Google. It's called the Copyright Royalty Board, and it's a lawsuit may be incorrect. It is a legal proceeding where songwriters, one of their two rate royalty rates gets set. And we won. We won a 44.5% increase, which was the largest in history. And now that's being appealed. Apple chose not to appeal it. So we applaud that. And we have asked people to use Apple Music as their streaming service because they, at least in this moment in time, are supporting songwriters. And we have particularly called out Spotify because Spotify, I won't spend the rest of this podcast on it, has been the most egregious actor in this sense, they want to do things to say and play in the court of public opinion that they support songwriters, but they don't when it comes to the pocketbook. Our hope is this. Our hope is after we get done with this appeal, we can work with the streaming companies to build a new kind of ecosystem in the digital world for all of us, but they're going to have to want to work with us, work together, and then I'm sure we'll all prosper. I'll say it this way. The Nashville Songwriters Association has a trademark. It all begins with the song. James Madison didn't envision any of this stuff, any of this stuff, especially streaming companies. And if we don't take care of the creator, we've got nothing to commerce. Hmm. Something that I've always looked at with a kind of wonder, awe, is the, the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Here is a a collection of the greatest songwriters in American music all together. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame and that part of what you all do. Well, we don't really do that. That's a separate organization, but it's a great one. And they induct a number of songwriters and songwriter artists into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame every year. It's one of the, it's one of the most... It's so full of feeling the night that happens. It's one of the greatest events you could ever attend. And similarly, the Texas Songwriters Hall of Fame and the New York Songwriters Hall of Fame, they all do that. And there's just something special when you celebrate the person that sat down 
with a blank piece of paper and a pencil and created something that moves us and inspires us all. Has there been anybody that you have met that you were in especially in awe of as a result of working with NSAI? Well, there's a lot of songwriters, and I don't really want to start naming names, but I'll name a couple in particular. There was an obscure band named Calico in the 1970s and early 80s. And as a DJ, I love that band. They were way too ahead of their time. They were probably a little too country for pop radio and a little too pop for country radio. And their leader was a guy named Keith Impelletier that wrote a lot of the songs. He was the lead singer. And I tried to track him down literally for a few decades. And finally, my wife reached out to him, and we got to connect. And um, that was just especially important to me. And um, I'll leave it at that. But that's the kind of thing that I get to do in this job is meet meet my musical heroes. And there have been many and many and many of them throughout the decades, and I love them all. Do you think that there are any misconceptions about Nashville? Well, we're proud of the Nashville in our name. I'll start there, but it belies what we really do. We're the largest advocacy trade association for songwriters in the world. We represent every genre. We have about 100 chapters, and our work benefits urban songwriters, hip-hop songwriters, you know, country, rock and roll, pop, Christian, bluegrass. And so the Nashville in our name kind of belies that. You know, many, many years ago, Nashville had an image of Nashville, that's a bunch of hillbillies. And so it's, it's, it's a growing city. It's an important city, certainly in the creative ecosystem of music. And we're very, very proud of it. If someone is going to go to Nashville on a, a holiday and they're a big music fan, what would you suggest they do while they're there? Well, I don't say this because we own it, and good luck trying to get into it because it only seats 99 people. But if you really want to see songwriters in the most pristine environment, try to get into the Bluebird Cafe. Tickets go on sale a week before the shows, and it's, it's, the songwriters sit in the middle of the room in the round, four of them. They go around in a circle playing songs, one of the best parts is not even the songs you love, but the stories about how they got written, and who they've touched, and the interaction between the writers. And then there's a number of other great places, from the Ryman Auditorium to another, uh, many other songwriter venues, such as Douglas Corner Cafe. And then there's the more touristy area, Broadway and downtown Nashville, kind of the honky-tonks. And there's a lot to do, but it's also a city rich in history and culture, from the Hermitage to the Parthenon, it's a great place to spend some time. And what a lot of people are wondering, what is the Bart Herbison recommended place to eat? Monell's, <laughs> if you yeah. want some Southern food. And they've got two or three different locations. You want the best fried chicken you ever had? You just go to Monell's. I, I don't know what else to say. It is unbelievable. And then go to Midtown Cafe for lunch. <laughs> All right. All the listeners out there, if they want more information, it's NashvilleSongwriters.com. I always like to end the interview. I let the guests just kind of take the stage. Very open-ended. What would you say to anyone tuned in? Well, 
you should join the Nashville Songwriters Association. This really isn't a plug to join. It's 200 bucks a, a year. But whether you're a hobbyist or an aspiring professional, you get to be part of our culture. You get to speak our language. You get to peek behind the curtain. You get to send your songs, even if it's just some lyrics, and we give you feedback on those. And it's just a, a beautiful community. Look, I love creativity. I love creative professions. I'm not sure there's another one like the songwriter. Maybe painters. Songwriters are beautiful and wonderful and dysfunctional and and schizophrenic all at the same time. And it's I say that lovingly because it is a very, very complicated gift. And when you co-write songs, imagine sitting in a room, bearing your soul to someone in a way you might not even do with your spouse or your family. And we are fortunate to get the product of that. You know, songs like Change the World, Always on My Mind, are results of that process. And we sort of give you a peek behind the curtain. Support us. Pay attention. You can go to our social media, NSAI official, uh, NashvilleSongwriters.com, and you can see some of the fights we're fighting and learn how you can support us. But at the end of the day, I'll repeat something I said earlier. They're going to play a song at your funeral. <laughs> song is going to be played at your wedding. And there was probably one involved in your conception. That's how important what the songwriters <laughs> do is. It generally marks the moments in our lives. Absolutely. Well, Bart Herbison, thank you very much for this interview. My pleasure, always. And I would add one other thing. We have Bluebird the movie that will give you a peek into that, which is now available on all the platforms. That was really a labor of love for us. And Erica Wallam Nichols oversees the Bluebird Cafe. And you're going to laugh and you're going to cry. And if you really want to find out about songwriters, check that out. Uh, absolutely. All right, Bart. Thank you very much. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Well, all right, man. Thanks. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for doing it. Make it easy, man. Zip, bip, bibbidi bop, boobity zing, dang, bon, chee, tikadali zing, ba bang, do, coochie, atsikili matsuko, ah, you should get gone, go, go, I don't go, easing on the glen, dang, I'm pontai. And a little bit of a plant, and a little bit of a dig, 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 and a little bit of a dig,